Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. Hi everyone, uh, once again I have um, a group of people gathered together to do the next <laughs> podcast on uh, the topic today is obstetric hemorrhage and I will actually introduce these unknown people. So I've got Matt, uh, Matt Ruckledge and Shilpa Desai. Hello. So, hi Roger. It's the A-team again. Um, so we're going to talk about the basics of a, uh, obstetric hemorrhage. I was wondering, we could start off with a quick anecdote or should we just get into it? Anecdotes are always good. Well, the other thing that we're thinking of doing is actually having a separate uh, supplementary recording podcast where we have lots of anecdotes. Why don't we do that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I thought we might start off with definitions. I did send you a WhatsApp me- uh, message with a sort of outline. The did you read it? Did you do any of your homework, guys? I did. Okay. I went through the answers. <laughs> So what's the definition of a uh, postpartum hemorrhage? Shelter. So quoting Roger's answers, (laughs) um, a postpartum hemorrhage is, so it can either be, um, I guess, immediate or secondary, um, and then we can define it as uh, whether it was a vaginal delivery versus a cesarean section. Um, So I think the classification is a vaginal delivery is greater than 500 mils and greater than a litre for... uh, uh, cesarean section? Yeah, that's what I found. I have seen elsewhere 750 mils as well. So, but I think there's different definitions depending on which bodies proclaim to define it. Okay. Um, I guess anything over, oh, I don't know about you, Matt, what do you think? Anything over 750 mm. mils is quite a lot. Yeah, I, I think traditionally it was 500 mils or more. Yeah. Regardless of um, mode type of, of delivery. delivery. Yeah. But given we are notoriously bad at estimating blood loss, yeah. um, relying on a actual volume doesn't make a huge amount of sense um, and I think there are some definitions suggesting that any blood loss causing hemodynamic compromise yes that's right is, um, is significant considered yeah, yeah. yeah postpartum hemorrhage yeah, but I think yeah five, 500 mils and above um, yeah and we're going to talk about measuring uh, trying to measure blood um, blood loss um, a little bit further on in the in the podcast but yeah you're right it is very notoriously hard for various reasons mm. um, and I think the, the woman studied had uh, similar definitions to that as well. It was like, um, you know, any hemodynamic compromise. Yeah. Um, all right, but some basic physiology. You mentioned primary and secondary. Um, yeah. And I think secondary is after 24 hours. Yeah, anywhere after 24 yeah. hours to, <coughs> yep. I, th- I can't remember how many weeks it was, but after 24 hours. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <coughs> so we've certainly seen women coming back in sort mm. of four or five, six weeks postpartum having you know, really serious hemorrhages, so it can be quite quite delayed. Yep. Um, physiology, what's, what's the plasma volume at term in a lean woman estimated to be? It's quite a broad range that I could read, but I think, uh, so what I could find was that, and <laughs> everyone's looking Silent. at me, it's hard, it's hard for Silent. people to pick up the, the, uh, the body language over a podcast. <laughs> So what I found was a sort of a rough rule of thumb for a, a, a lean woman at term, the plasma volume in a, a third trimester is about 100 mils per kilo. So if you're the average 70 kilo human being that we all talk about, um, it's about seven litres. So it is, um, um, they say you do, you know, it's probably, it's probably one and a half litres more blood than normal. 
Um, so you set up to, you know, perfuse your uh, baby, but also lose, you, you've got some reserves if you lose blood at delivery. And the uterine blood flow. I don't know why they're looking at me blankly because I've actually got it all written in front of us. <laughs> we didn't read it, Roger. <laughs> I just remember this one was, I think, about 750 mils per minute. Yeah, so that's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's, so if you get some brisk sort of arterial-type bleeding from the uterus, um, and even if only half only half of the blood flow that's going through the uterus uh, comes out in a hemorrhage, you know, within about, <clears throat> I have to do some maths, you know, within 10 minutes you've, you can lose all your blood volume. So that's why it's pretty scary at times. Um, okay, so what are the causes of, um, well, how do we, what's some good ways of classifying the different causes of um, obstetric hemorrhage? Shall I take that? Yeah, <coughs> so okay. tra- traditionally they've been classified as the four Ts, which is yep. one of the, it's not really an acronym, more of a classification that I can remember. As long as you remember um, Tone or lack of yep. um, uterine which is by far the most common yeah. cause of uh postpartum hemorrhage, uh, trauma, um, so any, any uh, uh, trauma to the uh, mm-hmm. uterus, genital tract, yep. which can bleed significantly, um, yep. really quite remarkably. Um, tissue, um, by that we mean retained products of conception, um, preventing the uterus from con- contracting. So there's often an element of tone as well with tissue yeah. and also infection, which can also help uh, lead to bleeding as well. Mm-hmm. And then finally, thrombin. Which is a kind of use loose of the word uh, the letter T <laughs> yeah. to uh, imply lack of thrombin again, yeah. so some sort of uh, coagulopathy. Yeah, so that's more of a um, just sort of a memoir for for coagulopathy because it's uh, it's often not thrombin that's the problem, is it? Yeah, it's yeah. other things. But we'll talk about that in a minute. And of course, you can have you know more than one um, occurring. Yeah, um, you may even have all four if you're unlucky. Yeah. Um, and then uh, sometimes people talk about the, the fifth T, which is theatre. I think that's just to, to remind you to take them to theatre. That's that's what okay. Graham said anyway. Yes, Graham is a <laughs> is a world expert on this, so we should listen to him. <laughs> um, risk factors. Okay, so so we've talked about tone. What are the things? Because uh, that is the main the main cause. What are the risk factors for uh, uterine atony? That we should sort of you know just have have in our back of my mind. So. I guess prolonged labour, um, ongoing oxytocins, uh, so induction of labour, um, multiple pregnancies, VBAC. What else? Yeah, I always think of you know anything that's really been pushing the uterine muscle to its limits. Yeah. So yeah, long labours um, being augmented with uh, oxytocin. Yep. Um, being stretched by multiple pregnancy, fibroids, polyhydramnios. Yep. Um, I know that obesity is a risk factor for atony. And yep. I think also the older mother as well. But I, Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I think you're right as well. Yep. Um, <coughs> so beware, like I always often say, this is just a uh, quick digression, beware of you know, the, the caesarean that's coming for failure to progress. You sort of think, oh, well, there's, mm. you know, there's no fetal distress, it's all going to be fine. But actually, sometimes just delve into that, you know, how long have they been trying to get this baby out vaginally? I mean, thrashing it for, um, you know, 24 hours and the uterus is really tired. Mm-hmm. Um, at quite high risk of uterine atony. Um, and I think they, de- they down-regulate oxytocin receptors after um, long hours of on oxytocin infusion, so they may not respond when you give them, you know, carbitocin or oxytocin. Um, 
So some of the other risk factors for for people, I think. Sorry, Roger. Um, I think um, anemia as well. Is, I think iron yeah. deficiency is, yep. is associated with. Yes, you're right. You're trying eating. Okay. Presumably, they're just maybe the muscle doesn't work as well mm. as, it, as it as it should. Mm. Um, so I'm going to. Shall I just go through some of the other th- other mm. other risk factors for you for obstetric hemorrhage? These aren't necessary for tone. These are just hemorrhage in general. So placenta previa. So. That's where the um, placenta is, uh, um, the placental be- uh, is implanted into the, <laughs> I'm struggling for, use English language badly, <laughs> is implanted into the lower segment, so that doesn't contract very well um, after delivery. And so, you know, the, the way that the uterus usually sort of compresses all those vessels in the uh, where the placenta was is by sort of contracting around them, and the, the lower segment's very thin and is not very muscular, so often... People bleed from placenta previous. Um, I've got down fully di- fully dilated cesarean, so the baby's head's stuck, and then um, I think they can be quite traumatic births, can't they? So often they've well, they've been in long labour anyway, but also the trauma of getting the baby out can cause trauma to the uterus and the birth canal. As as do emergencies like code blues. I I think often code blue cesareans are high risk. Mm-hmm. Because they're just in such a hurry to get the baby out that things can they can, can happen which um, you wouldn't do if you were doing it slowly and carefully. Um, and then just difficult surgery, multiple prever- previous cesareans, and then obviously anyone having a VBAC should always be really, mm. um, you know, really observant. Um, the next thing I was, we were going to talk about is measuring blood loss. How, has anyone got any comments? How do we do it? How easy is it? What are the things? Like? Well, I guess to reiterate what we said earlier, that it's notoriously difficult. And yeah, done badly. To do and done badly, yeah. Um, I mean, partly because it can happen uh, quickly and also um, slowly as well. It can mm-hmm. be concealed within the uterus. It can be concealed under the bed or curtains. Yep. If you have curtains in your <laughs> labour room. <laughs> I don't think we do at ours. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult to. It may be on pants, it may be in bowls, it may be in a bucket. It, it's yeah. it's just hard to do, and there may not be the attention to um, to assess it and yeah. weigh swabs. And uh, you know, when you do look at heavily swabs, uh, he- heavily soaked swabs, and weigh them, it's quite remarkable how much blood can be within them. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, so it's a bit easier to measure in theatre. Even in theatre, it's um, inaccurate, but it's easier because we can sort of. Uh, look what's in the suction container and we can weigh the swabs which don't weigh you can almost just ignore the weight because a a swab is only like 50 grams or something by itself Mm -hmm. so if it weighs 800 grams then most of that's blood Um, there are some pictorial aids um, which show like a a bluey um, and a swab and a kidney dish a kidney dish is 800 mils so that's quite a lot Mm. Um, but then again even then that can be inaccurate because uh, amniotic fluid oh. is mixed in with it and it's very hard to know how yeah, much is amniotic true. fluid and how much is blood. Um, so, uh, and because recognition is often poor, I guess one of the things is to any woman, any patient who has got tachycardia or low blood pressure or just doesn't look good, any sort of deterioration at all, you should always mm. consider hemorrhage in, your back, in, the, in the back of your mind as a possible cause. And I have got a good anecdote for that one. <laughs> are we going to save that? Yes, we no, no, it? we're not going to save it. So I remember coming on as a DA one day and being uh, phoned up and said, oh, can you come up and see this woman up on the ward? 
I think she's had a PE. Um, so I went up to see her and she was a, um, a woman who'd had an emergency caesarean overnight and she was tachycardic and <clears throat> and the team were like, oh, I, I wonder, you know, should we organise a CT scan, which in, in this hospital involved a trip to another hospital in an ambulance, so very long, tedious sort of transfer across um, across town <laughs> to her in a radiology department and, and they were really worried that she'd had a PE because she was, you know, she didn't look good and her heart rate was 140. And then I sort of delved into it, and oh, she had a code blue caesarean at 6am, and she's been back on the ward for, for about four hours. And I was like, uh, hmm, why Why she had a PE? And, uh, and, and so it wasn't clear, and it was really, there was nothing coming out vaginally. It was all, you know, there's no obvious bleeding anywhere, but we decided to take her uh, down to theatre and stick some lines in um, before we, because I was worried she didn't look stable enough to send across the town and uh, did some bloods and um, just watched what happened over time and, and, and her her initial hemoglobin was not great and then we gave some fluid and she responded to that nicely and then sudden and you know and then she deteriorated again and then we did another blood and her hemoglobin was even lower and then we realised that actually she was exsanguinating into her abdomen mm-hmm. and there was about three litres of blood in her tummy and I thought oh my god she could be in an ambulance in a radiology mm-hmm. department yeah, if I'm <laughs> and yeah but just something about her just mm. made us you know, put a handbrake on that plan. So, yeah, difficult to diagnose, and if you miss it, um, it can be can be a disaster. All right, should we go back to the basic management of uh, of a more obvious obstetric hemorrhage? So, say, I don't know, a woman has just given birth after a long labour down in labour ward, and she's bleeding, and, she, uh, and uh, she's bleeding briskly. What are the sort of things that we should be doing? I guess there's so much that we need to, yeah. to we need to think about. Um, so she's down in labour ward. So first thing we need to do is organise transfer to theatre. Yep. Because um, theatre is where we're going to manage her. We'll have personnel, staff, etc., and all our equipment that we need. Then I think we also just need to stop and think: who do we have? What time of the day this is? Who yep. do we have available? Do I need to call for extra help? Do I need, um, you know, some? extra techs, extra uh, consultants, etc. around to help. Um, and then what does she have in terms of IV access? Uh, is it just one cannula? Is that cannula working? The yep. other day, for example, I had a, a big bleed come up to theatre with a cannula hanging out. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's really it's really stressful trying to get gain IV access when <laughs> you've got a patient bleeding in front of you. Um, so, yeah, IV access, send off bloods at the same time if you can but at the same time you know um you're trying to do everything what sort of size iv should we use because something <clears throat> more yeah okay i know before i did anesthetics and uh and, and yeah most of my career i just use little pink cannulas for most things in the in the world the uh, bigger the bigger the better <laughs> yeah so i think here we we don't let them put in anything smaller than a 16 gauge can can you label but i'm not sure if that's just this hospital or what they do uh, in the rest of the world, but you want something big, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess you're trying to do everything simultaneously, aren't you? You're yeah, trying that's right. to resuscitate this woman who's in, in front of you, who's hemodynamically unstable, but you also want to, you know, stop that bleeding. And is the bleeding because of tone? Is it because of tissue? Is it because of trauma? You know. So we also need to have the, the situation for the obstetricians to. Um, you know, to go ahead and manage this. So okay. are we giving a general anaesthetic? Are we giving, is it a regional? Should we do one of those, each of those in, in turn? So yeah, let's, just say, let's just say we think it's tone, this, this 
the obstetricians go, it's been a long labour, she's just atonic. What's the sort of process we go through to manage that? Uh, <coughs> well, there's mechanical means of yep. um, encouraging tone and also pharmacological uh, measures as well. So mechanical is, is what typically called rubbing up the uterus, which is basically stimulating the uterus yep. by putting your hands either on it if you're at the point of a caesarean section or on the um, the pelvis and just, just rub the, the lower abdomen quite firmly. Yep. I have done it, not frequently, but yep. you know sometimes I Usually think anyone can do it. The obstetric team and the midwives do this a lot, yeah. don't they? <clears throat> it's remarkable sometimes, you know, the other hands are doing other things, so just, just you can just do that whilst you're doing other things as well. Um, and then pharmacologically, which is pr- probably more our department, um, and that is going through a stepwise process of using drugs that work on different receptors to stimulate the uterus to um, contract. Yep. Um, and typically we will start with a, um, uh, oxytocin. Yep. And we will sort of work from there. Mm. Yep. So down in labor, I think they typically they give um, 10 units of oxytocin intramuscularly or sometimes they give syntometrin which is a combination of ergometrin and oxytocin intramuscularly um, but certainly once someone's getting an established PPH they'll often um, start the um, 40 units and 500 as an infusion as well and then so and as well as ergometrin you can move on to carboprost which is the only F2 alpha um, prostaglandin that we have in Australia now um, What's a typical dose and dosing regimen for that? 250 units intramuscularly. Yep. Um, obviously, just be aware of a patient with um, bronchospasm, so asthmatics uh, is contraindicated. Um, and then I think you can give up to eight doses of carboprost. Yep. And you have to wait sort of 15 minutes between each dose, yep. which is not, not that long, is it, in the big scheme of things? Um, I think the important thing is to, um, to not persevere with one particular yeah. drug. Um, and sort of use a, a you know an escalating stepwise process <coughs> to try different things. Yeah. Yep. But be mindful of um, times we shouldn't use drugs like you say, Shilpa. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I have you know again think of anecdotes. <laughs> yeah. I've seen some pretty significant bronchospasm. Um, yeah. With uh, carboprost. Yep. And while we're on that, when we should talk about ergometrin too, shouldn't we? So don't exactly. give that to people with heart disease or who are hypertensive, which is quite common. You know, preeclampsia and hypertensive disorders. And yes, it's not benign. We've seen Takasubo and severe hypertensive responses, and so it can be qu- it can be quite um, significant. And that's more significant if we give it intravas- intravascularly compared to yeah, intravenously. Yeah. yeah, but I, even oh, sorry, intravenously. In, even intravenous. IM, if someone has a contraindication, you shouldn't use it. Yeah, but I do yeah. sometimes think you know if your blood pressure is like in the sixties and yeah. you're struggling <laughs> with tone, and people are saying you can't use ergometrin, she's preeclampsic or yeah, blood pressure's right. up. It's not. It's a risk benefit. It's, it's a risk benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah that's right. Um, so you just have to decide what's the most pressing issue at the time. Yeah. Um, and then so so the obstetricians can also do some things. I mean, presumably, once you get a lot of this is easier to do in theatre for. So, um, but they can do bimanual compression where they put a hand in the vagina and push from above. And then once you're in theatre, they can do things like back balloons if they're. If they open the abdomen up, they can do compression sutures. They can ligate uterine arteries. They can do a hysterectomy. Um, and, of course, you can also do things uh, with radiologically, like embolise um, uterine arteries and things like that. Um, and they can rem- 
repair, trauma, remove placenta and tissue and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff in theatre. So if someone gets to theatre, uh, how do we decide whether to do a regional or a GA, Matt? It's going to be on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Um, thinking about the specific risks of regional and general anaesthesia in that particular patient and the evolving circumstances at the time. Again, thinking of another anecdote, I do (laughs) do remember getting called to theatre where the the, the registrar was struggling with uh, putting in a spinal for a lady for an EUA for a PPH. Yeah because she wouldn't stay sitting up because she kept fainting. And I looked at her and she was white as a sheet. I thought, oh, yeah. okay. I think maybe probably go for a general anaesthetic. Yeah, so you don't um, really want to do a sympathectomy on someone who is in shock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So generally, as a rule, if someone is, is pretty compromised by their pe- the hemorrhage and has um, got signs of poor perfusion and hypotension, etc. Yeah, and look, I think it's an important point because we're, we... Um, we, we, we try and avoid general anaesthetics in, in obstetric anaesthesia. Yeah. Um, but we have to remember that once you have delivered, many of those risks are reduced. Um, the baby's gone, the oxygen consumption um, is you know, gone, going back to normal. And there's often other benefits to general anaesthesia yeah. um, in that situation, for example, heavy yep. bleeding. So we mustn't always be wedded to that regional anaesthesia. Yeah, I, I agree. Sometimes you just, and it's, it's very hard to manage a major hemorrhage, especially if it turns into a really serious hemorrhage. Very hard to manage putting in lines, checking blood, giving blood products and all sorts of stuff while this patient has got a blood pressure of 60. They're asking what's going on. They're vomiting. They're, you're trying to yeah. talk to them. It's just like, it's just so much easier to do what you need to do. Yeah. But look, having said that, you know, we, we all know we look after many patients who come yeah, to theatre. that's right. Um, for examination, a plus or minus insertion of a tamponade balloon. Yep. And we can manage those with an epidural top-up if they have an epidural in place yeah, or, or, right. a, or a single-shot spinal. Yeah. But I think we have to acknowledge whether it's likely to evolve into something more uh, unstable yep. and, and how stable the patient is at the time. Yeah, and you can never get it 100% right. Sometimes you do a regional and things get bad and then you have to change the yeah. mm. But in, in the context of somebody unstable, bleeding heavily, General anaesthesia is, is yeah. probably the way to go unless there's very significant risks <coughs> to a general anaesthetic. So the patient arrives in theatre, um, Matt and Chopper, the blood, heart rate's 160, the blood pressure's 60 over 40. Spinal. Panic. <laughs> <laughs> How would you do... A, what would your approach to an induction for a general anaesthetic? There's no right or wrong answer to this, is there? No, there's no, no right or wrong answer. Look, I think um, it depends on how quickly we need to do everything but again I'd, I'd stress on the fact that we need good IV access if we can resuscitate our patient yep. as best as we can before inducing general anaesthesia that's the safest thing for the patient um, and then I don't know if you're trying to get to what drugs would I use is that what you no want? no I want just to do all the stuff you've just said yeah okay um, and and then drugs as well yeah. but I think actually the drugs are just as long as you use a small Small, dose or careful dose of whatever drug yeah and use what you normally use just be careful of the patient in front of you and um you know titrate according to the patient so it's not a prescription of one milligram per kilo in that particular patient it's just you know what what that particular what that patient needs yeah so everyone has some something different i I often use a little bit of ketamine and a bit of sometimes a bit of propofol mixed Mm -hmm. with ketamine or and um 
The other thing to remember is manual aortic compression. If someone is like, say, for example, having a mm-hmm. catastrophic bleed, which we might mention in a minute, but, you know, and their blood pressure is like 60 over 40, um, but the surgeons can't stop the bleeding until you get them off to sleep. You're stuck in a sort of in a vicious um, situation where one one is stopping the other. You know, you, you're worried about inducing them because you think they might arrest. But sometimes, you know, if you can just um, press on the aorta... Um, to stop the bleeding temporarily while you fill them up, say, quickly with a litre of fluid and then you put them off to sleep mm. is a useful thing. Um, coagulopathy and blood products. Um, mm. How often do patients having obstetric hemorrhage become coagulopathic? Probably not as often as we think. Yeah, you're right. We, we, we look after a lot of... Um, and, and, and this, I guess, is uh, we've, we've worked this out over recent years when we've been looking at coagulation in a little bit more detail um, and rather than jumping to give products up front in sort of protocolized um, therapies like giving FFP and blood, FFP blood, um, when you actually look at the coagulation in major hemorrhage often the uh, coagulation remains normal. Yeah, that's right. So um, when we started doing viscoelastic testing with Rotem, uh, probably nine, ten years ago now, um, we stopped using a lot of our um, things like FFP because most of the time there was nothing wrong with their coagulation. They just needed um, some volume and some red cells often. Um, there's, because most women in the third trimester, are, uh, their hemostatic systems have you know, uh, adapt, uh, changed uh, during pregnancies such that they've got a lot of reserve. They have lots of fibrinogen, uh, lots of um, uh, reserve in their, in their clotting um, system. Uh, exceptions to that are patients who have abruptions. I think you'll be very mm. careful. They can sometimes develop this systemic sort of coagulopathy really rapidly. Something about abruption. And, um, FDIUs? Yeah, well, in some of the FDIUs, which I think are because, because of having an abruption. Um, okay. And what are the other ones? The HELP syndromes. Uh, people with HELP syndrome obviously can develop liver dysfunction and low platelets. Um, and... Um, yeah, those are the... And, and, there are, and AFE, AFE is classically... Yeah. Uh, and, and some women that just have a big bleed without any of those, but yes, for that's more right. common reasons like um, yeah. uterine atonic can, can yeah. sometimes develop yeah. significant coagulation that's disturbance. Right. But once you've bled a certain amount, often you can become quite profoundly coagulopathic. So it's it's tricky, isn't it? So you, ideally you want to actually measure what's going on. Yeah. But not everyone, who, you know, certainly like most women who have... Um, who are normally fitting well and yeah, just bleeding yeah. because they've had a st- stock standard cause like um, a retained placenta or some uterine atony and they've bled one or one and a half litres or something like that, the huge majority of them will not be quite lipidic. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Roger. Um, um, and, but just staying with blood for a moment, just one yeah. of the other thing, I guess, if, if somebody's rushed into theatre or even starts bleeding heavily on the labour ward is to activate your hospital's um, critical bleeding protocol or major hemorrhage protocol, whatever you call it it's maybe a little less relevant now that we're, we're working out that yep. patients aren't as coagulopathic as we thought they were yeah um but it still does focus the the mind of everybody involved yep and also gets blood bank um involved as well so the most probably the most useful thing is probably you should i think most people agree now just give tranexamic acid one gram to people so uh to prevent or treat any fibrinolysis that's occurring uh, that just takes that off the off the um, what am I trying what's that to do list <laughs> off the to do list 
Uh, that just takes it out of the equation. That's the correct thing. And then if they do become coagulopathic, by far and away the, the most common thing that goes wrong mm. is low fibrinogen. So if you are in a situation where you can't measure things, so you don't have uh, access to sort of rapid turnaround assessment of um, hemostasis, then and you think this patient has is becoming coagulopathic or you're not sure, then just give some form of fibrinogen. That's probably the, the go-to thing. Mm. Uh which is either cryoprecipitate or uh, fibrinogen concentrate, depending on where you are and, and what resources you have. Um, so we do, do um, when we teach a major hemorrhage uh, workshop for ANSCA, we do talk about also this concept of the hemostasis traffic light, which has been um, 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 promoted in some circles where if someone is like peri-arrest, so this is basically talking about, you know, look at the physiology of the patient having the hemorrhage and you classify them as either red, sort of amber, orange, or green. So if someone is like arresting in front of the exsanguinating, you're not going to wait to see if the, the rotum or the coagulation profile is abnormal. You, you're going to give them everything. So you're going to give them red cells, tranexamic acid, uh, some form of fibrinogen, and maybe some FFP or some brethrombinex or something like that. <coughs> um, and if they're orange or green then that's basically serious bleeding, but it's a less urgent, so you may have time to check things and, and then um, you know, give the blood products based on what you've, what you've measured. And most, most useful things, I don't know what you guys think, is just to do a blood gas. That could be venous or arterial. Mm-hmm. And in our hospital, a rotum, but if you're in whatever device or capabilities your hospital has, you know, some even a straightforward coagulation profiles quicker than it used to be um, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we'll tell you what the fibrinogen is. And I think that's really a really important point, isn't it? That yep. it fibrinogen is the boss. Yeah, so and again, this is a relatively recent yeah. um, finding in obstetric hemorrhage that it's all down to the fibrinogen, predominantly um, yep. the rate at which it falls. Um, and I believe when it gets down to less than two grams, that's 100% predictor of a major PPH. Yep. Um, so keeping an eye on that and like you say Roger whether that's done by a viscoelastic test point of care device or just by looking at a fibrinogen on a coagulation screen yep um, gives you the same information maybe in a slightly different time frame but gives you the same information um, but really keep it I mean I my, my eyes over the last few years really when I even look at a coagulation screen now I just go straight to the fibrinogen yep and in the obstetric setting if you have a very low fibrinogen that can prolong your APTT and INR mm-hmm. um, so Basically, tranexamic acid and fibrinogen, and then obviously you should blood. look uh, at the platelets. Yeah, blood. Yeah, and blood as well. <laughs> yeah, of course. So aim, aim to keep the hemoglobin. You know, you're not going to be. This is not a conservative tr- treatment of a chronic anemia where you can tolerate low hemoglobins. If someone's actively bleeding in front of you, you don't want to get too far behind. So if they're hypovolemic as well as have a low hemoglobin, you're going to need to transfuse earlier. Yeah. And that avoids giving additional um, crystalloid or colloid that may further dilute yeah. their coagulation factors and cause more bleeding. <clears throat> yeah, that is tricky. But but generally, in most excisory hemorrhages, you can if, uh, if you, that you anticipate are going to stop in a, in a, a you know a reasonable time frame, you can give um, a few liters of crystalloid. So it's probably the safest way to go initially to treat the hypovolemia. Um, so you're not allowed to not give crystalloid, but don't keep giving it. Yeah. Um, once it's obvious that things are going uh, pear-shaped, you uh, try to um, give some blood. Catastrophic bleeding. So what are the things? So most, you know, like we're saying, most of them are straightforward sort of uterine tone or, or tears or um, 
tissue, but there's a few sort of scenarios I was thinking of which um, are like really scary where someone can sort of bleed out in front of you in a few minutes. Um, I've written down uterine rupture. I've definitely oh. had, so, so be very be aware of that if the uterus ruptures. Uh, uh, abnormal placentation as well, so your yeah. accretors procretors. Yep, they are super scary. Yep. Um, Especially in the middle of the night and as an emergency code blue. Yep. Um, they're definitely a lot more scary than as an elective procedure where you've got time, you've got time to do everything. Everyone, you know, it's 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 far less stressful than as an emergency. And I, I wonder if those um, those patients, the uterine blood flow is more than that seven or eight hundred mils that we talk about because they've uh-huh. had, they've developed these massive big vessels that have sort of inf- sort of grown during the pregnancy because yeah. they can just like I don't know. Seen that? I've seen. Uh-huh. Suction canisters fill up with like four liters of blood within about two minutes, and, and the patients are literally arresting in front of you. Yeah. Um, I think um, we're all nodding because we're, <laughs> we're, all, we're, we're all gonna, <laughs> scarred by that. Gonna phone our counselors when we leave. Okay. <laughs> Severe trauma. So um, I'm, I think that's just like even just like serious sort of tears and rips and things uh, can sometimes really hose mm. a lot more than you expect. There's some really um, more rare things, but you've got to keep in mind. So uh, ruptured livers, you know, people with HELP syndrome get these mm-hmm. uh, these case reports of ruptured livers and uh, splenic artery aneurysm. Or certainly I was involved in a case where someone uh, ruptured a splenic artery aneurysm, which was related to preeclampsia in pregnancy. So there are some other rare things that can happen. Yep. And uterine inversion as well. Yes, uterine inversion. I haven't thought of that. I haven't seen that for a long time, but yeah. Yep. Um, and that requires... You gotta be brave. You have to give GTN yes. <laughs> to get the uterus back in when they're in shock. Yeah. That's brave, isn't it? Or just deepen the sevaflurin. Yeah, one or the other, or both. <laughs> um, so that's that's the splenic artery aneurysm. Actually, Roger, just worth a couple of minutes on that. Because yes, I was going to talk about that in my um, oh. uh, my anecdotes and okay. supplementary. Oh, well, I'll save that for the. <laughs> Because I, I was involved in one, so but it is quite rare. Yeah, but it okay. is something to think about. I think it's something worth talking about. Yes. We could devote a whole podcast to it, mm. probably. Um, all right, so we might finish that. Okay, thanks, Matt. Thanks, yeah, thanks, Roger. Thanks, Roger. You've been listening to the Obstetric Anesthesia Basics podcast series, a short podcast series designed for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. These discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges and issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anesthesia. However, there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anesthesia. Equipment, drugs, facilities, protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals, geographical locations and time. You should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions. Thank you for listening.